I don't usually read prayers, but I'm going to read one tonight from John Ryland, uh, who lived from 1753 to 1825. Get that context in your head. Uh, and what was some events he would have lived through. And then um, let's bow our heads and let me just read his prayer as we go to our Father. Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise, all my times are in thy hand, all events at thy command. His decree who formed the earth fixed my first and second birth. Parents, native place and time, all appointed were by him. He that formed me in the womb, he shall guide me to the tomb. All my time shall ever be ordered by his wise decree. Times of sickness, times of health times of poverty and of wealth, times of trial and of grief, times of triumph and relief, times the tempter's power to prove, times to taste the Savior's love. All must come and last and end as shall please my heavenly friend. Plagues and death around me fly till he bids I cannot die, nor a single shaft can hit till the love of God sees fit. That was written, our Father, by a man who knew you and who knew your word. And he took great, great comfort and great solace in what the scriptures tell us about you and your sovereignty and your power and your plan. Uh, you are the creator. You spoke the worlds into existence. You created out of nothing. Now, we constantly hear that's not true. But whenever we read the pages of Scripture, we are told that it is true. As followers of Christ, we believe it. And we believe that all things are created by him and for him and through him, meaning Jesus, who is our Savior. And not only has he given us life, but he oversees our lives. My times are in thy hand. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. You've enclosed me behind and before, and every guy in this room. And our existence is not determined by who we shake hands with or what we breathe or anything else. Those, those things are play factors. But ultimately, Lord, you are the one who preserves our lives. Psalm 68, 8, to the Lord belongs escapes from death. And every guy in this room has had at least one. Where we should have died, but we didn't because you were not done with us and your purpose was not complete in our lives. This is all because of your sovereignty and your power. It's all because of your minute plan. And that plan, Lord, sometimes thrills us and sometimes shocks us. It, it, sometimes, um, it's, it sometimes makes our souls 
uh, just long to be in heaven. Uh, other times we look around with what's going on and we wonder why you are allowing these things to happen the way that they are. But then we have to remind ourselves again of what you have said, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. We are not the first believers to live in troubling times. Uh, we, we've just had a long run. We've had an exceptional run of being somewhat pain-free. Oh, we've had our pains, but nothing like we're seeing right now. So uh, help us to be stayed upon Jehovah. Help us to have our feet firmly anchored in you and in your character and in your word. Help us, Lord, not just to fill our minds with the events and the opinions concerning uh, the affairs of men and the issues that are alive and well, but uh, let us soak our minds in the truth of the living God which has been given to us in your Bible. It's the only thing that gives peace. It's the only thing that steadies us. It's the only thing that gives us uh, peace in the midst of uh, anxiety. It's the only thing that enables us to be stable when everyone around is panicking. So we live our lives, and in, in you we live and move and breathe and exist. We live under your sovereign care. You are our sovereign defender and our sustainer and our provider. And we cannot die till our work is done. Help us remember these truths. Help us to live in light of them and encourage us. You've told us over and over and over and over again in Scripture, fear not. So we don't fear. We trust in you. Our whole lives are held together by you. And your purposes for our lives absolutely cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything. So we give you glory and honor and praise your name, which is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. I was a rookie seminary student I was 22 years old, and I was in a class called homiletics. And I was so green, I had trouble remembering the difference between homiletics and hermeneutics, which was the name of another class I had in seminary. Uh, homiletics is where they teach you how to preach. I mean, I don't know why they just couldn't have called it Preaching 101. But no, they had to call it homiletics. And then I took, I was taking this course called hermeneutics. Uh, you know what hermeneutics is? It's um, how to interpret the Bible. So homiletics is preaching, hermeneutics is interpretation. And I'm telling you, I was so green, I had trouble, I, I mean, I didn't know enough to know I was ignorant. I just, am I in homiletics or hermeneutics? And so I would take a preaching class and then I would take the next day an interpretation class. And they dovetail together. In the preaching class, we were given an assignment. And I'd never preached in my life. But they were going to teach us how to preach. And the assignment that I remember from that class was we were told that we were supposed to pick 
someone in the Bible that we were totally unfamiliar with. And then we were supposed to put together a biographical sermon on their life. And I remember taking my Bible and flipping through the New Testament, and I was looking for somebody. And, you know, I mean, I'd been raised in church and Sunday school and the whole thing, so, I mean, I knew about Paul and Daniel and, you know, I knew the big guys. But I was looking for a little obscure guy. And... um, you know, there's a bunch of guys at the end of Romans where Paul says, hey, you know, greet them and say hi to them and uh, tell the guy to send me the check he owes me. I mean, that's, that's not in there, but, you know, he's just, it's just, but there wasn't enough on any of those guys to really do a message. So I keep working my way through, and I was getting a little nervous because I'm getting to the end of the New Testament, and then I got to Third John, and I found my guy. And I couldn't even pronounce his name. But if you have a Bible, it's 3 John 9, and his name is Diotrephes. Diotrephes is an interesting guy. Uh, We are doing this study this semester on the whole concept of finishing strong. Uh, We have uh, alluded to the fact that the Christian life is a race. And just by way of setting this up and a little bit of review, kind of our key passage as you're going to 3 John... um, Nine, kind of uh, the key passage has been Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Um, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and let me just make a point here. Uh, you know, originally, in your Bible, the way you can navigate, you're going to Third John and you're going to, now there's only one chapter in Third John, but you're going to verse 9. Well, originally, when these letters are written, there were no digits next to the verses. That came much later, and they were inserted just to kind of help us find our way. But uh, originally, you didn't have those references in Scripture. Now, what's interesting is that there are at least two Bible projects underway right now, and, and one, you can buy your Bible without any verses marked, and you can just read them the way they were written. And there's another one that's coming out with the same way. It's a little tough to navigate. But the reason I say that in Hebrews 12, it says, therefore, let us lie, let us, no. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Well, and the question would be, well, who are the great cloud of witnesses? But if there was no division between the end of 11 and the end of 12, and there was no space, uh, you would know, so what's a therefore? Whenever you see a therefore, stop and see what it's therefore. Therefore is a summary. When, when some preacher says, therefore, you're thinking, great. He's about ready to wrap it up. Since he's a preacher, he's got about 10 more therefores. And you might be there a while. But normally a therefore is a conclusion. So, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, see, he's just talked about the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11. The men who walked by faith, who ran the race and finished the race, and now are with the Lord. To us, who are alive and running the race, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those who are with the Lord, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run, here you go, with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, We pointed out the two words with endurance are significant because that tells us that the Christian life is a long race. It's not a sprint. 
It's a long race. It's a hard race. It's an exhausting race. There are times you want to quit the race. There are times you're not motivated in the race. There are times it's hard to get out of bed and, and, and stay with the race. There are times you're injured. There's times you're hurt. There are times you've been blindsided. You pull a hamstring. It's just a tough race, you see. Um, this is the race that we're running. Now, we're running the race because we've been called by Christ. Uh, at a certain point, you were born physically. But later, at a certain point, you were born spiritually. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, Nick, you must be born again. And Nick said, do I enter into my mother's womb a second time? No, no. It's what happens when the Spirit of God remarkably, amazingly, under the surface, changes our hearts. Uh, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. What, what, when you're born again, the same thing happens to you that happened to Lazarus. You are resurrected from the dead. That's what happens. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, and I haven't forgotten 3 John 9. I'm just warming up to it. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But even when we were dead, he made us alive. Just as he made Lazarus alive, Lazarus died. Jesus knew about it. Jesus stayed away on purpose. On purpose, he stayed away. Because he did not want anyone questioning whether or not Lazarus was actually dead. So he stayed to the point where Lazarus' body was putrefying. And then he shows up. And both sisters said to him, Lord, if you had have been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus said, He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And then Jesus spoke the words, Lazarus, come forth. Now, there were many buried in that area, but he said Lazarus. So Lazarus came forth. I got a question for you. How is it that dead men can hear? How is it that a dead man can hear a command? The only reason, catch this, the only reason he could hear Jesus is that Jesus made him alive so that he could hear and so that he could respond. That's significant. He was dead. And we're dead spiritually, and then Christ invades us, and we're born again. And we, we, our hearts are regenerated, and, re, and spiritual life is breathed into us. And at that moment, you are born again, and you say, and you call in the name of the Lord for salvation. And you know that he's the only Savior. You see? This is how this thing works. It's an amazing process. And so now we're born spiritually. But now, now it gets really interesting, because now that you're born spiritually, you're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. So now you're on a whole new journey, and you're on a whole new path that you've never been on before. Instead of uh, serving yourself and serving false gods and false idols and pursuing things that really aren't worth anything, you're pursuing the living God, and He's put a want to inside of you. 
and he's going to get you where he wants you to be, and he's going to take you from immaturity, and he's going to take us into maturity. But you see, that doesn't happen overnight. There are no Christian microwaves, you see. But you'll love microwaves because you can get things a lot faster with a microwave than you can with a regular oven. Sure you can. But there are no Christian microwaves that have the rest. You know, on the microwave, it's on the front. You know, have a little baked potato. How many minutes? You know. They got the, the, all the stuff. Not all of it, but a lot of it. <clears throat> There's no Christian microwave that says spiritual maturity, three minutes. Right? No, because, you see, we're talking about, we're talking about, it doesn't, mean we, it doesn't mean God can't change us instantaneously because he does when he brings us to know him. But normally, growth is slow, just like with our kids. You see? We, 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 we can't even crawl. We can't even feed ourselves. And then gradually, 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 gradually. You see? Same thing in the Christian life. And, and the, here's where I'm going with this, is, is that... He has called us because he wants to use us, and he's given us different gifts as men. And if, you're a, and if you're a male, he expects you to be a leader. And he's given you certain gifts. He hasn't given you all the gifts, but he's given you some gifts. You say, well, I'm not an upfront guy. You don't have to be an upfront guy to be a leader. Most leaders are not upfront guys. Most leaders are guys that fly below the radar and just get their work done. They just take care of their responsibilities, and they serve the Lord. Whatever you do, Colossians says, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ, as the Lord Christ whom you serve. You see, you're serving him, and he's given you a sphere of influence and a sphere of responsibility, and he wants you to lead in that area that he has given you. It includes your family. It includes your work responsibilities. It includes the people that you know and are connected with. That's your sphere of life. And you function within that sphere as Adam functioned within the garden. And you're a steward and you give an account to the Lord. And he wants to grow you and mature you and make you a better leader. And we learn through failure and through falling short. But he picks us up and encourages us. This is the Christian life. But you see, he wants us to learn to lead. And he wants uh, uh, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, Christ Jesus. Now, that's the Christian life. Oh, and then you die. I, I didn't mention that. But you're going to die. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion right now about people dying. Well, and that's because we've got this Ebola thing going on, and so a lot of people are thinking about dying who haven't thought about dying in a while, a while, because we've got our nice lives all planned and organized and set foot, and now, now you're actually thinking about getting on that plane before you get on it. You know? And now you're not sure you want to shake hands with that guy behind you, because you've always wondered about him anyway. But now everybody's just a little bit nervous. But see, the fact of the matter is you're going to die, aren't you? Yeah. You're going to die, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. And it's under the sovereignty when you die. And you can't die till your work is done. It is appointed, Hebrew says, for a man once to die and then comes judgment. You can't die before your appointed time. 
So it doesn't matter what's in the air. Or it doesn't matter where you travel. It's in his hand. My life is in your hands. My times are in your hands. Okay. Now, here's the thing about leadership. Jesus said, Jesus said that there would be those who would be in the church and in the kingdom who would look like legitimate leaders who are not. Okay? Uh, go with me, and again, I know we're in 3 John 9. You know, you just can't build a roaring fire. You've got to lay a little kindling first, right? A little kindling, a little newspaper, you know. Matthew, uh, Matthew 7. Beware of the false prophets, verse 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing. That means they look like they're one of us. They look like they're followers of Christ. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. You won't know them by their... Uh, you won't know them by how they look. You won't know them by... Um, they, they know how to... They know how to play the Christian game. They know the lingo, they know the vocabulary, they know the secret codes. I mean, they got, they got it down. They know the culture, the Christian culture, because they've been in it. They've been, a lot of them raised in it, steeped in it. So they know it. So you can't look on that stuff, but you will know them by their fruits. He gets right to the matter in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Watch this, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, and I find it fascinating, see, in verse 22, note that he doesn't say few will say to me on that day. He says many. Well, what are they going to say? Well, watch this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Well, wow, if someone does that, they must be the real thing. Maybe. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your miracles cast out demons? Well, gosh, that must be the real thing. And in your name perform many miracles? That's got to be the real thing. Not necessarily. And then I will, declare to, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's kind of sobering, don't you think? They look like the real deal. They've even done some spiritual things. And... And Jesus doesn't say on that day, a few will say to me. This is, you know, there's one or two guys every century like this. That's not what he says. He says many. Because false teachers will come among you. And false leaders will come among you. You see? Um, uh, he, he doesn't say they knew him and then they fell away. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. You see? Uh, he had with him uh, one of the twelve named Judas. And he chose him even though he was a devil, scriptures say. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Uh, all I'm saying is, guys, is that in the Christian life, here's what I'm saying. And I, I am saying that um, Christianity is a matter of the heart. 
And as we run this race and as we're following the Lord, we have to make sure that this whole thing with Christ is from our hearts, that it's not external, that it's internal. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. Deuteronomy 6. You see, it's from the heart. It's not an external. It's, 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 it's everything within you. And as you start following him, and, you, and some of you guys are thinking perhaps, you know, Steve, you're making me a little nervous. Maybe I'm one of these guys in Matthew 7. Because you see, Steve, here's the deal. I, I love the Lord and I've come to know the Lord, but I keep screwing up and I keep... I mean, this week I was back looking at porn again, and man, I'm not even sure I'm a believer. You see? I mean, if I loved the Lord, I wouldn't be struggling with sin. Not in this, I, I don't think so. No, you see, guys who love the Lord struggle with sin. But the deal is about the guys who really know the Lord, who struggle with sin, is that they hate the sin. And they don't excuse it. And they don't want it in their life. The guys who are the false leaders and the false Christians, they sin and it never phases them. It doesn't phase them at all. You see? Um, so the very fact that you're concerned about your walk with Christ and, and that you give in the temptation and that you fall short See, we're getting warm now. We're almost getting to 3 John 9, but I'm not there yet, so you've got to go to 1 John. Okay? Now watch this. In 1 John chapter 1, yeah, you know, I, and I hear this a lot from guys. Yeah, I'm not even sure, Steve, I'm really saved because I just struggle so much with sin. All right, now look at... You know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, that's a great verse. But look at verse 8. If we, uh, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, the fact that you're saying, I'm struggling with sin, a cross-reference would be Romans 7. Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I do. He had this internal struggle going on within him. And the reason he was concerned about it is that he really knew Christ from his heart. So if you're concerned about this, that's a great sign that you really know the Lord because you want to please him. So you, you want to be fruitful for him. I hope I'm making sense. See, you're really in trouble if you say you don't have sin. Because we all do, even as believers. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and he hits it again in 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There are some leaders in the church who are liars and his word is not in them. Now, what I want to make sure is that in my life, as I'm walking through life, is that, is that I know him, that he's my priority, that the Lord is my shepherd, you see, that I'm following him. I'm not playing games. And that I'm serious about him. And that I take what he says seriously, that he died for me and that he adopted me and I've been justified and I've been legally 
adopted into his family in Romans 8. You see, I belong to him. I'm in the family. I've got my papers. It can't ever be taken away from me. I have eternal life. And by the way, when do you get eternal life? The moment you're born again. The moment he makes you alive, you have eternal life at that moment and it cannot be lost because the gifts and calling, Romans eleven twenty two, 22, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Okay. Salvation's of the Lord. But as I'm walking through life, I want to watch my heart and I want to be growing and developing. Now, this guy, Diotrephes, I am now officially in 3 John 9. Because, why did I go into all that? Because when I was 22 years old in seminary, and I said, okay, I'm going to do this sermon on this guy, Diotrephes, I'd never heard of the guy, and he only gets two verses. But, but I spent several weeks working on those two verses and working on that small book of Third John, and what happened was that impacted me so much because after studying this guy's life and the kind of man that he was, my prayer was, dear God, don't ever let me become like this man. Please. I mean, it, it marked me. And I, 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 I mean that with everything I have. Studying this man's life, the two verses on his life, marked me for the rest of my life. We, we, we all know of the value of positive role models. You see a guy that, you know, is a husband and father, and he's, he's really... He's got his priorities right, and he's connected, and, you know, you've seen guys like that, and you go, yeah, that's great, man. That's a great role model. Or a guy in, in business who, you know, his business belongs to the Lord, and the Lord's first, and you watch him, how he deals with things, and he's a model. You know, a great role model is a great benefit, but I'm going to tell you something. I think you can learn as much from a lousy role model as a good one. In fact, sometimes the lousy role models can mark you in, in, in just a, as, as a significant way, strangely enough, as a positive role model. That's what Diotrephes did to me. He scared me to death. Absolutely scared me. So let's look at this guy for a minute. Now, let's pick up 3 John 1. The Apostle John This was the apostle who was going to be on Patmos and write the last book of the Bible, Revelation, okay? Who was with Jesus for three years, three years, three and a half years, 36 to 42 months, was with him every single day, 24-7, was with the Lord Jesus. Was, was hand-called, as all as the apostles were. That's who's writing here. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. So he's writing to Gaius. By the way, the way these letters worked, the elder would get the letter, and then the, the church would come together, and he would read the letter from the apostle. Okay? So everyone was going to listen to this letter. Uh, three, I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in the truth, which is what the Lord wants. He wants us to walk in truth. Okay? I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Is that not true? If your kids are walking in the truth, you're a blessed man. And if your kids are not walking in the truth, your, your gut's in a knot. And you're praying and asking God to bring them back around. 
And keep praying those prayers because God loves to answer those prayers. Five, beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. We're going to talk about these brethren in a minute. And especially um, when they are strangers and they have testified to your love before the church, you do well to send them on the way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So the apostle, here's what he would do. He would send out different men, different emissaries, to visit the different churches, to teach, to instruct, whatever. And uh, back in those days, hospitality was a big thing in the church because, you know, you just didn't stay at a Motel 6 or at a Hilton or a Hyatt. Uh, There weren't many inns to begin with. Most of them, I mean, were places where basically brothels. There wasn't a hotel industry as we know it. So as they would send out these believers, they were dependent on the believers wherever they were going to house them and feed them and support them as they went about their ministry. And so this is what this is all about. John has sent these people out. He sent these men out. And he says, I I thank you for making room for them and for honoring them and understanding that we sent them and uh, and encouraging them. Uh, They're going out for the sake of the name of Christ. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Now, watch 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. This guy was a leader in that church. Diotrephes. The name Diotrephes means nourished by Zeus. He's obviously not nourished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Zeus was a false Greek god, and this guy, by the fruits of his life, even though he's in a church and names the name of Christ, apparently by his fruit, he's still being nourished by Zeus instead of Christ. There are... um, There, there are five things that stand out to me about Diotrephes. And the thing that struck me is that he was a leader in the church, but in actuality, he was actually, um, in my mind, a counterfeit leader, a false leader. Uh, years and years ago, there, uh, th- there was an ad campaign for 7-Up. And it was so successful, they ran it for years and years and years. Uh, 7-Up, not a cola, not a root beer. I see guys mouthing this. They know this. It's, it's imprinted. It's been tattooed on your heart of hearts. 7-Up, <laughs> not a cola, not a root beer. 7-Up, the, anybody remember? The un-cola. You remember. You remember. The un-cola. That prefix un, what does that mean? Uh, I looked it up in the uh, Greek New Testament. Actually, I didn't. Uh, I just figured it out. Uh, what did they mean by un? All you had to do was listen to the commercial. By un, they meant that, uh, hey, 7-Up, it's different. It's different than cola. It's different than root beer. It's un. Uh, it's opposite. It's 
it, it's the opposite of cola, it's the opposite of root beer, whatever you're drinking, Dr. Pepper, it's opposite. It's the un-cola. Now, I want to submit to you that as I look at Diotrephes, he's the un-leader in the Scripture. A guy that had a position in the church, a guy that had a title. Um, leadership is an interesting thing. We've talked about it before in here. I, I wrote my dissertation at Dallas Seminary on leadership. And one of the things that you have to do, it's just the way it is. When you do that dissertation academic stuff, you've got to define your terms. And I remember my advisor, Dr. Reed, saying, all right, now the first thing you're going to do is define a leader. Well, that's easy. He said, no, you've got to go find published definitions of a leader. And as I recall, I found 168 different published definitions of a leader, and every single one of them were good. They were all good. They were all excellent. Because, you know, leadership is multifaceted. It's like a diamond. When you went in to buy your wife's wedding ring, the engagement ring, you know, and you're going to propose and do that whole thing. Uh, and I know you think you got a good deal on that ring, but they took you to the cleaners <laughs> as they did me. I mean, we were like a deer in headlights. We'd never been in there before, and we didn't know what we were doing. And I know they gave you a great deal, but they took you, man, and they took me. And you're kind of mesmerized, and they put you in that room, and they put the lights down, and there's black velvet everywhere, and they pulled that stone out, and they put the light on it, and they show you the different facets and the cuts, and they move it around, and you go, oh, yeah, oh, wow, oh, oh, man. Right? They say, how many carrots? You don't even know if it has carrots. You can't even see them. But you're buying into this thing. See, they move that ring around, and you can see, it, it, you, you know what I'm talking about. That's how leadership is. That's how there could be 168 different definitions of a leader, and every one of them good. But the best definition that I found out of the 168, I quoted it many times in here, was from Dr. Howard Hendricks. And Dr. Hendricks said, you, may wanna, you might want to jot this down, because it's, it's significant. <laughs> Dr. Hendricks said, a leader is someone who leads. Now, that is profound, is it not? A leader is someone who leads. We are surrounded, surrounded on every side by people with leadership titles and positions who do everything except lead. They don't know where to begin. They don't even know what the issues are. They're utterly, absolutely, completely clueless and unqualified. And I'm feeling better already. <laughs> and it's your place of work. Have you ever worked for a guy like that? I bet you have. I bet you have. And, you know, he's the son-in-law of the boss, or he's, the, you know, he's, he's got some connection, and he's there, and he's got no business being there, and everybody knows it. I want to give you, uh, from the text, five reasons that this guy is the unleader and that we should ask God to help us to not be like him in any way, shape, or form. I want to go ahead and give you the five marks, and then we'll come back and hit them. Uh, Diotrephes was the unleader, number one, because he was an unservant, an unservant. Secondly, 
He was the unleader because he was unteachable. Number three, he was the unleader because he was unjust. This is all in the text. I'll show you in a minute. Number four, he's the unleader because he was, this is grammatically incorrect, unhospitable. You want to get it right, inhospitable. And number five is not in the text, but I deduce it just from the description of the kind of man that he was. He was the unleader because he had an unhappy family. When a man is a leader and lives his life like this, he's going to have an unhappy wife and unhappy children. This is not a recipe for success in relationships. This is a self-centered, selfish, narcissistic man who is in it for himself. That's what he's all about. I remember I was with my dad and my brothers. We were at Mount Hermon Conference Center in Santa Cruz, California, up in the mountains there. And uh, we were walking in to the session, and my dad asked me, he said, he said hey, Steve, have you read uh, Warren's book yet, The Purpose Driven Life? I said, no, I haven't read it. He said, he said, I just read it. He said, it's got a great opening line. I said, yeah, what, what's the opening line, Dad? He said, the opening line is, it's not about you. My dad really liked that. He told me that about 15 times during the weekend. <laughs> he really liked that, and that's a good thing. It's not about you. And so we all think it is about us. And this guy, Diotrephes, he thought it was all about him. And this guy was a cancer in his church and in his community and I, I think in his family, even though the text doesn't say so, because you cannot have that kind of fruit in your life and have healthy, wholesome, productive relationships. It doesn't work. Okay. He was the unservant. Let me give you some verses. What did Jesus have to say about leadership and about... Well, let me give you Mark 9.35. In Mark 9.35, Jesus said, If anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. What does it say about Diotrephes in the text? Diotrephes, Diotrephes, who loves to be first. He doesn't like it. He loves it. He loves it. It's what drives him, is to be first. We, we've got our home up for sale. We're, we're trying to get our home up for sale. I thought, it would be, I thought, I thought you'd, you signed up and you get a sign and you stick it and you, you sell it. But no, there's this whole, I haven't done this for 18 years. There's this thing now called staging. And we're staging. And we're getting it ready. And they do this at Guantanamo to prisoners. I, I, I just made that up. I, it, it, it is somewhat torturous. I heard someone say that word. Because what you got to do is you got to get your house that, in which you live, you got to make it look like you don't live there. And no one's ever been in there. And the sink's never been used, and I mean, the car, nothing has been touched. You got to get it in that kind of shape. Oh, my office is at home, and I got books everywhere. I mean, I got books hanging, falling off on the floor everywhere. So I'm having to go through books and box books before I ever move. 
and I had to rent a storage unit. And I rented the whole facility. And it's, I'm, I'm exaggerating now because, anyway, it's been an interesting time, and we're not out of it yet. But I say this because a few days ago, I took some books down, and I'm just going through them, and I see this book by Robert Rinker that I got in 1978. The title of the book is Looking Out for Number One. Best-selling book. Huge. The reason I remember that book, I was a rookie pastor in the San Francisco Bay Area. I had a friend in Southern California, very gifted guy, who was working with another young pastor who was extremely gifted, one of those guys who was taking a church, meeting in a gym, and then, you know, they're three, four, five, six thousand. Everybody's going crazy. Everybody's coming to this guy's church. Uh, he was probably five, six years older than I was at the time, but he's the latest, greatest success and rage in the evangelical world. And so I went down to see my friend who works for this guy, and we were going to have lunch, and he said, Hey, you want to have lunch with, and I got to be careful not to use any names. He said, Hey, Let's grab lunch. He wants to have lunch. Great. So we go have lunch, and we wind up hanging out for about three hours. And as we are having lunch, and this guy's the latest, greatest rage, and all the young pastors wish they could have his kind of success, it's all coming his way, and he's young. I mean, I got a church at first Sunday, I had 58 people. And the next week, I think I had eight. <laughs> and those were, you know, my cousins, and they felt obligated. Yeah, I, I wasn't what you called, I wasn't experiencing church growth, but this guy was. And it was kind of fascinating because he kept talking about this book he was reading that was having such an impact on his life. You know what the book was? Looking out for number one. My dad really that weekend didn't talk about Rick Warren's book 10 or 15 times, but this guy did. He talked about it so much on my way home, I stopped and bought a copy. And I actually read it for a while in the bookstore, got the gist of it, took it home, had dinner with Mary that night, and she said, how did that go? And I said, well, it was really interesting. And she said, how so? And I told her about it. And I said, I'll tell you, Mary, I think this guy's going down. And I'm not a prophet, but you could see it. Because all he talked about was being number one. All he talked about was, was the money all he talked about was the growth. All he talked about, it was just, I mean, it was, it was revolting, quite frankly. And it's tragic what happened. Absolutely tragic. Immensely gifted guy. Uh, no doubt he um, pointed a lot of people to Christ. But he wasn't watching his heart. It was, it, was, it was like Uzziah last week. It was too much, too fast, too soon. He couldn't handle it. Uh, here's another verse from Jesus, Matthew 18, 4. Whoever then, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 20, 26 to 28. Jesus said, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Watch this. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to be served. 
He came to serve. There's my model is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your model as a Christian man, and he's my model. Flip over to Philippians 2. Now, on the way to Philippians 2, don't forget. Now, just go to Philippians 2. We talked a little, we, a little bit last week. We mentioned humility, and you find it in Philippians 2. Uh, Diotrephes, see, when you love to be first, that's the opposite of humility because you're in it for yourself. Now, in Philippians 2, here's what we read. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Christians get weird on humility. I remember one time a lady sang a solo in our church, and I went up to her afterwards, and I said, thanks. That was really tremendous. Thanks so much for that. She said, oh, it was just the Lord. I remember thinking, no, I mean, I thought I heard you singing that song. (laughs) I mean, I didn't say it, and I knew what she was doing. She was trying to be humble and give all the glory to God. That's, That's fine, but, you know, she had a voice. She had a gift, but she worked on it. Obviously, she worked on that song. She had had a lot of self-discipline. She had trained. She had been given a gift, and she was a good steward of her gift. But to be humble, she felt like, oh, it was just the Lord. You understand that. We get kind of weird on humility sometimes. What is humility? Well, It's defined right in the text. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Humility is regarding other people as more important. You're there to serve. So if you're in a marriage, quite frankly, you're there to serve your wife. She's not there to serve you. And see, when you've got a godly woman and she believes the Scripture, then what's her mindset? Well, she wants to serve you. And when you get people, two people, trying to outserve each other, now you've got some hope. But when you're competing with each other, that's tough. And we've all been there, and we've all done it. Look at verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interest of others. The Scripture is not weird. It doesn't say, don't give any concern to your interest at all. It doesn't say that. You're supposed to look out for yourself and appropriately, but that's not the focus of your life. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. In other words, have this attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped. But he emptied himself. Or the margin says in New American Standard, he laid aside his privileges. He was God. And what did he do? He was God. He came down, was born of a virgin. He was born of a, of a, of a virgin. He created her. The star that led the wise men to the manger, he created that star and every other star in the heavens and everything they could see and taste and touch and feel, he created it all. Because he was God. He laid aside his privileges and he came to earth as the God-man, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died for us. You see, Jesus didn't do what was best for him. He did what was best for us. That's humility. And I'm to have that same attitude in me which was in Christ Jesus. So I remember writing this chapter on Diotrephes years later when I was doing the book Finishing Strong, 
and we lived in Coppell, and there was this FedEx office at the airport. It's actually still there. And this was before email and any of this stuff. And when I was, I was going to finish that chapter, I had to get to my editor. So I had to get over to that FedEx office by 1030, which was the cutoff. And it could still make it to Oregon the next morning. And I'm busting my tail trying to get this thing done in about, I don't know, 9.15, 9.20. I'm in there, you know, going at it. And I hear, Dad, Dad. And I open the door, and there's my youngest, Josh, in the hallway throwing his guts up. Dad. And my first thought was, where's Mary? <laughs> where is Mary? And I didn't know where she was, so I helped him, you know, poor little guy, he can't do a thing about it. He's just got the dry, he just had a bug. And so, you know, okay, I'm trying to help him and get a towel and, you know, just do it. And I don't know where Mary is. I don't know where she is. And she said she would be there in sickness and in health. <laughs> And I'm writing a manuscript, and i got to get that sucker to FedEx by 10.30. i got to finish that so those guys can read this about being a servant leader in their own homes. <laughs> and the irony of it didn't hit me until a couple hours later. See, the fact of the matter is, I can write about diatrophies all I want, but I'm as blind as he is. Why was this guy like that? Because he was blind. And see, this is why I, 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 what I, one of the things I took away is, Lord, Lord, don't let me be blind to this in my life. Don't let me be blind. Don't let me miss this because I know it's in me. See, I don't mind writing about being a servant. I just don't want to be a servant. And you don't either, right? So I got to be led and I got to grow and I got to mature here. And not fight this stuff. But see, if I'm not teachable, which is the second point, if I'm not teachable, I can't ever grow. Let's go back to, where are we? Yeah, we're in Philippians, but we're, we're in 3 John. Yeah. I haven't been there much, but that's where we are. So let me get over there. Um... I wrote something to the church, but to Adephes, who loves to be who loves to be first, watch this, does not accept what we say. Just that one line. He doesn't accept what we say. Oh, wait a minute. Who is we? It's the Apostle John. An apostle, hand chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. John was an apostle. The church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of the prophets, the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. This guy was hand chosen by Jesus Christ to build the church and to write scripture and Diotrephes has so much hubris, he won't even listen to what John has to say. He's not teachable. And if you're not teachable, you're dead meat. If you're not teachable, you will never grow. And he wasn't teachable. And I, I'll bet you anything, it just wasn't John that he was that way with. I wonder if he had friends that ever tried to talk with him, and he wouldn't listen. I wonder if his wife ever tried to talk with him, he wouldn't listen. He's unteachable. Number three, uh, you, you know, an unteachable, 
I, a long time ago, I was doing a conference for Campus Crusade for Christ. A bunch of college kids there over the Christmas holidays. And I was getting up to do the next session, and four or five girls, college girls, walked by and they said, can we ask you a real fast question? We know you're going to get up. <coughs> we're, we're seniors at University of Nebraska, and we all hope to be married and have Christian marriages someday. What is the one thing we should look for in a potential husband? I didn't have much time, so I said money. <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, it, was an easy, it was easy for me. Uh, I, I, I probably, because I'd spent so t- much time on things. What's the one thing we should look for? What, what trait should we look for in a potential husband? I said, look for a guy who's teachable. Because if he's teachable, he can grow. And all guys start out as young and immature. That's just the way life is. But if he's teachable, he'll become a mature man. But if he's not teachable, I wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. That makes sense, doesn't it? And, and you know, back, I mean, think back to when you were a young guy. Can you believe the stupid things we did? (laughs) Just stupid. Just wasting our lives. Just stuff that was just moronic. Right? And then what did the Lord do? He invaded our lives and pulled us to him. Greatest thing that ever happened to us. Here's number three. Godfrey's was unjust. He was unjust. Um, John says, I wrote something to the church, Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Now watch this. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. Unjustly accusing us with wicked words. You got to watch your tongue. That's James 3. Uh, I would venture to say every man in this room, you have scars and you have wounds because someone unjustly accused you with wicked words. It happened to you in elementary school and it happened to me. Somebody said something to you that stuck and that hurt. And then, you know, we have this thing, sticks and stones may hurt my wounds, but words may never hurt me. Now, that's a crock. (laughs) You get over sticks and stones, but you never get over the words. Words can scar, they can can bother you for 60 years. Something that was said when you were nine years old, you can still be carrying with you and you're almost 70. The power of words, the power of the words of a leader. Um, I, I, I got to pull in two things here because they're relevant. And I wasn't sure how I'd get them in, but I haven't done number five yet. I mean, I've alluded to number five. When you have a guy that is this way, that's not a servant, who's not teachable, who's unjust, uh, and number four, I might as well hit that one. He was, he was inhospitable, unhospitable, because that's also in verse 10. 
Uh, he unjustly accuses us with wicked words, not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren that John sent out. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So if you want to, I mean, you want to, those guys come in, John sent them out, and they're teaching the Word of God, and you want to, you know, say, yeah, I got, the, you know, that room over the garage, come on in. He'd put you out of the church. Why? Because he thought it was his church. It's not his church. That church belongs to the Lord Jesus. But see, he's all about himself. Not hospitable. Well, that, that, that kind of attitude just poisons a family and it poisons a home. So therefore, you got number five. I, I, I deduced he had to have an unhappy family because you can't have that kind of poison in your life and be all about you and have healthy relationships. It's impossible. Okay. I want to pull in two things here. Uh, because I said this in the opening minutes, just in the introduction before we even prayed. We are living right now in remarkable days. What we're seeing going on around us right now. And, and the, is, it, uh, is it Psalm 11? Yeah, I think it is. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We are watching the foundations being destroyed at a breathtaking clip. The hubris of saying to pastors in Houston, we want your manuscripts. We want to know what you're saying. We want... Who do you think you are? These are fascinating times. And we've had the second person in Dallas now with Ebola. And now there's three. I haven't checked for a while. And you know there's going to, see, because, and now the cat's out of the bag. And normally if you travel, you just travel. Now you're thinking about traveling. I mean, I already know one wife today of a wife who called her husband and said, you rent a car and drive home, you see, which is understandable. But, you know, it's not going to take too long. But I'm, I mean, you, you already thought this through, or you're trying to come to grips with it. Um, I, I guess I want to pull two things in here, because I said this last week. It's, it's becoming more and more difficult to finish strong. If you're going to follow Christ, Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. We had an easy ride in terms of Christianity in this country for a long, long time, but the easy ride is over. Uh, the persecution is here, and it's heating up daily. Daily. It is very possible that we will see pastors in jail in this country, if not probable. And see, I've thought that for 20 years, but I really couldn't say it because people would think you're nuts. But you see, there is a tipping point, and once you hit it, all you gotta do is read church history. Um, Russ Douthat is a 
is a Christian who, amazingly enough, writes an opinion page in the New York Times. And um, he recently wrote on October 3rd, a column called Pagans and Christians. And let me just read this, and you'll see where I'm going with this and how it relates to what's going on right now in our culture. And he sets up a paragraph. I don't have time to read this, the first paragraph, but I'll just jump into it. He says, consider as, for instance, this piece in Slate magazine from the science writer Brian Palmer which passively, aggressively complains about the fact that so many, of the, so many of the doctors fighting Ebola on the ground in Africa are Christians. And we're still Christian missionaries. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but actually maybe there is something wrong with that. And he quotes Palmer, I'm not altogether proud of this bias, I'm just trying to be honest. And then... Douthat goes on and says, or at least Palmer wants us to know that he's a little troubled by its implications. Some missionaries are incapable of separating their religious work from their medical work. I suspect that many others have the same visceral discomfort with the mingling of religion and health care. I do if you want to kill a baby in the mother's womb, I do. Yeah, I got a big problem with that. That's my quote. Even as a broad-minded guy that he is, he concedes that until we're finally ready to invest heavily in secular medicine for Africa, the missionaries may deserve our grudging support. <laughs> They're the only guys in there. Why? Why? Harry Blameyers, the Christian mind, Harry Blameyers wrote this in 61, as I recall, and Blameyers said the difference between the secularist and the Christian is that the secularist thinks this world is all that there is. But not the Christian mind. Historically, when there have been plagues, you know who has is, who is not left town and who has stuck around and ministered and helped and nursed and done all this and doctored? You know who it's been? It's been Christians. Why? Because they don't believe this is all there is. And you see... Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. Isn't that fascinating? Until they can get secular medicine in Africa. Secular medicine's not going in Africa. Because you've got to deny yourself. It's, it's worth reading. You guys still with me? You may be with me, but the clock isn't. I'm out of time. But that has never, ever stopped me before. <laughs> Why should we let it stop us tonight? Um, this is William Manchester's third volume on Winston Churchill. He died before he could complete it, so he, um, Paul Reed, he asked to come along and help him finish but when, they, when the Nazis, when Hitler was going to, you know, take England in the Battle of Britain, he was going to overwhelm them with air power. The, uh, uh, England had the sea power, even though the U-boats were, were doing a lot of damage. 
But, but you know, they were in France, and they were 25 miles across that channel. And, I mean, this, this was huge. And I was reading this this morning. And setting this up, this all started happening in 1940. Hermann Goring issued his first personal, first operational directive for the Battle of Britain on June 30th, 1940. Okay, so he's running the Luftwaffe. Okay, Goring. Okay. Each day the German raids grew heavier and more frequent. You know about the bombing, I mean, it was horrific stuff. All of England and all of Germany, indeed the entire world, anxiously awaited each day's scores upon which the outcome of the battle and the likelihood of invasion seemed to hang. How many German planes went down, how many RF planes went down, okay? Every day they're reading the scores. And it was heavily weighted in, in terms of the Germans. Uh, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, accepted their pilots' claims of German trophies without question. However, British accounts of their own losses were always correct. That was not true of Luftwaffe reports. Announcing light casualties for the Luftwaffe and severe British losses was a mighty tonic for the morale of the Reich. And Germans concluded that their airmen were winning the battle. One problem with deception is that the deceivers deceive themselves. This is what happened to the Luftwaffe's high command. The Germans, as Churchill told Parliament later in the war, had become victims of their own lies. See, those in leadership who lie, who unjustly accuse and unjustly distort, eventually it comes back on them. At his country estate, Goring studied these bogus figures the false statistics. He counted the number of British ships sunk and declared that the campaign had been a stunning German victory. Now, you got these different personalities, these different names, and these were guys, some of you know about them, Beaverbrook and um, uh, Colville. I, I don't have time to explain, except these guys were working with Churchill, okay? Moreover, after the wrecks of aircraft downed over Britain, let me back up. I'm trying to go too fast. Moreover, I want you to watch this. I'm reading this this morning, okay? It just cracks me up how history, uh, Hegel said history teaches us that men never learn from history. So you had these planes being wrecked. Moreover, the wrecks of aircraft down over Britain could be recovered by Beaverbrook's civilian repair organization. So efficient was the Beavers' CRO, repair organization, that by the end of the summer, one-third of Dowding's fighters, the RAF general, one-third of the British fighters comprised parts from crashed hurricanes and spitfires. So they would salvage the parts, and they were rebuilding planes faster than it could be imagined, and Goring's over there reading these false reports, and we took out these planes and these planes, and we took out this and this and this, never dealing with the facts, which the facts were, yeah, but they're getting parts, and they're building more, and they actually have more now than when they started. Am I making any sense so far? All right. On August 10th, Coble noted in his diary, Beaverbrook, Churchill said, has genius, and what is more, brutal ruthlessness. Never in his life had he seen such startling results as Beaverbrook had produced. What's he talking about? He's talking about leadership. Beaverbrook led. He didn't talk about leading. He led. There was a problem, and he went to work. 
He didn't make speeches. He knew what had to be done, and he utilized what resources he had, and he put troops on the ground, and he came up with a strategy. And the stuff I'm not reading is, well, I am going to read this. Just let me shut up and read it. <laughs> the last paragraph. Luftwaffe airmen were as dangerous as ever. Their superiors, however, were not. Officers of higher, higher ranks committed the blunders and mismanagement with, within the Luftwaffe. The intelligence that Goring was receiving was appalling. The Germans had only a meager understanding of the British defense system. Indeed, at the outset, they didn't know where key British airfields even were. Operational maps did not distinguish between fields used by fighter and bomber commands. The two factories where Rolls-Royce built the Merlin engines that powered hurricanes and Spitfires were never bombed, although their locations were no secret. Vital orders were miscarried. Weather reports were unreliable. Staff work was slow and sloppy. Goring summoned his generals in order that under no circumstances should he be disturbed by subordinates in search of guidance. Worst of all, he adopted no coherent strategy, no priority of targets. After the war, Adolf Galland, one of his officers, wrote that constantly changing orders betraying lack of purpose and obvious misjudgment of the situation by the command and unjustified accusations had a most demoralizing effect on us fighter pilots. It's a lack of leadership. You can't believe a word that's being said. There's no leadership, there's no strategy, there's no thinking through. Whatever you do, don't disturb me. That's not what servant leaders say. I just found that fascinating. <laughs> Under the sovereignty of God, because a lot of us are thinking that right now. Are we not? And we're recording this so that then when they request the transcripts, we've got them. <laughs> you see? All I'm saying, guys, are we concerned about what's going on? Yeah, but we're not the first guys. And Jesus is still Lord, and Jesus is still on the throne, and Jesus is still sovereign, and he has a plan, and he's running the show, and we are so extraordinarily receiving, we've received grace, that we know him, and that we can keep living our lives, and not live in fear of death, not live in fear of this or this, and not live in fear of all the inadequacy. Job 12, the misled and the misleader belong to him. Gosh, that's great. This is the truth. The foundations are being destroyed, but the kingdom is being built. And I'm going to tell you something. It's times like these when life gets frightening that people who never thought about him start thinking about him. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May many be saved through this and many enter the kingdom of God. Thank you, Father, that you work sovereignly 
in strange ways that we don't get or understand, but you're working. Help us to trust. Help us to, to take these truths tonight and not live as diatrophies. If we need to go home and apologize to our wives, maybe we quick to apologize. If we've had several friends point something out to us because they care for us and they're on our team, and instead of just sloughing it off, may we reconsider this and bring this before you. Is this something you want us to hear, something you want us to change? Don't let us be like this man. Let us be leaders who lead under your authority and in submission to your word, living off the promises and going to sleep tonight and resting in spite of all of this because you give to your beloved even in their sleep. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.